You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Our text today, Lord willing, will be verses 17 through 27. 17 through 27. I'll ask you if you're able at this time to stand with me and we'll read these verses together beginning in verse 17 and then pray and begin working through. John chapter 19 beginning in verse 17. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. When Pilate also, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord our God, I do thank You for this time and for Your Word. O oh Father, the testimony of Your Word is a constant appeal to the very scene which is set in front of us here and now. Lord, the crucifixion of Your Son was the proclamation and the centerpiece of all that Your people had to say. Lord, it's the focus of our attention. It's the very heart and soul of the Christian Gospel. Lord, I pray that You give us the grace to marvel at the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to enter into these things supernaturally. Rid us of distractions and anything that would hinder us from our worship. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed. That You would work mightily in us. Oh, Father, I ask that You would shut my mouth from misspeaking. Guard me with the truth. Let only Your Word be what comes forth. And I pray it would come forth boldly. Lord, we entrust ourselves to You. We know that You are good. And that You, O oh God, deserve all the glory and all the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon 
I'll tell you from the beginning is a ripoff from John Bunyan. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a section, a chapter titled The Valley of Humiliation. The Valley of Humiliation. Now, of course, in that book, the Valley of Humiliation was not focusing on Christ Himself. It was focusing on Christians' engagement with Apollyon and his suffering and his, the attacks that he faced in that valley. And yet, I find a striking parallel with what exactly we're seeing in our text today. There is this focused theme in the cross of Christ on His humiliation. And so in light of that, there are two primary points I want us to consider today. I know there are many verses more than we normally try to cover, 11 in total. And we're going to try to provide the context and the historical accuracy that's required for us to get this narrative right, but also to draw out of it applications that are immediately relevant to us. And I do think there are two primary points for us to consider. I mean, quite honestly, we could spend all of eternity glorying in the cross of Christ, and I imagine we will. Worshiping God, seeing what Jesus did here, and worshiping Him forever, and seeing something glorious and new and special every day for all of eternity where there is no time, only ever glorying in the cross. But for our purposes, I want to look at these two primary points. Here's the first one. The first one, which I hope we see throughout these verses, which is almost entirely neglected within professing Christianity, is the example that Jesus sets as our standard for facing humiliation and opposition in the world. There are people today you'll hear and they'll say things like, well, I'm just bearing my cross or I'm going through a crucible of sorts. But what they really mean is that they're dealing with frowning providences and the things that they want are being threatened a little bit. And maybe it's not opposition from the world at all. Maybe it's just they aren't financially doing as well as they like that they would. They're bearing a cross of sorts with nothing really to do with bearing the reproach of Christ and being hated by the world. For some reason, in the West, as Christians, we expect to follow Jesus and to be honored and respected for it. And all I have to say to that is that if you desire to be respected by people who hate God, you better find yourself another religion. Following this Jesus will be costly. It will be. The second point, that's the first point, is the model, the example that Christ gives us of His humility, of what it means to bear a cross. The second an undoubtedly most important point is that Jesus Christ is our substitute. And so this is almost a paradox when you consider the first point. I'm saying Jesus is an example. He is an example to us of what it means to bear a cross. And then the second point is that He's not only an example. That there are those today who will tell you that Jesus only died as a martyr who is advancing a cause. We heard a few years ago in our Sunday school curriculum on the American gospel, those people who were saying, denying that Jesus died as a substitute, and they were saying when He died, He was just showing how loving and forgiving He really was, that He was willing to be died, willing to die rather than rise against them. There are those who say that Jesus is an incredible example of humility and love, and that we all just need to simply value the lives of other people so much more than our own that we become pacifists. I say that is utterly foolish and it's nothing short of blasphemy and slander against the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of His active accomplishment in His death, in this crucifixion, is maintained throughout the entire Bible. I'll give you just a couple of references. 
The very first time we're told about this crucifixion expressly is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Jesus did not only go to the cross as a martyr, as a pacifist. He went to do some bruising of his own. He went with a purpose and an intention to bruise the serpent's head. That's what was taking place on the cross. He was going to war against sin and the devil and death. And then we find in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. If you go back and read verse 14 of that same chapter, you'll find this. There's this reference of Him taking our sin and nailing it to His own cross in order to triumph over these authorities and rulers. That tells you that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished a mighty victory and God triumphed over these forces of darkness in Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus was not only an example, but it was a glorious substitute in the place of sinners. And so... With those two things in mind, let us look forward at the cross. Look forward at the crucifixion and be compelled by the love that's displayed that we might imitate Him ourselves. So, we begin, well, not necessarily in verse 17. I'm not sure why the ESV translators did this. You may have noticed that there's a short little expression before verse 17 in the text. And they divided up the section in an odd way. They've got... So they took Jesus as the last part of verse 16, but then they start a whole new paragraph and a new heading. And I'm not exactly sure why they did that. But for our purposes, let's just take this first expression. This is the inspired Word of God. So they took Jesus. And I believe this is something worth our focused attention for a moment. Remember, this does come immediately after we've read that Pilate has given Jesus over to be crucified. And after Pilate has given him over to be crucified, they take Jesus to crucify him. Now, consider this. Everything that we've seen in the life of Jesus so far as the Son of God. Remember, that's John's purpose from the beginning. We saw this at the very beginning of this gospel. We looked forward to chapter 20 and verse 31, and we saw where John tells us he's written all of these things in order that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. And so all of this book has been showing us how Jesus is God. And so it's almost shocking to see people manhandling Jesus. So they took Jesus. How can it be that mortal men could ever force the one who we've seen? We even heard in the, cold, or in the, the New Testament reading, how he commands the wind and the rain, cease, be still, peace, wind, peace, storm. The one with the authority over the wind and the rain and who upholds all things by the word of his power. How could any mere people command him and force and control him? And yet it says, so they took Jesus. And the answer is that time and time again, we've seen Jesus disappear from crowds and escape what seemed to be certain arrest and death because up until this point, it had not been the appointed time for Him to die. Jesus certainly had the power to prevent any of these things from happening to Him at any moment. You remember with me back from chapter 10 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one takes my life from me, He says. No one is taking something from Jesus without Him giving it up. The Father's given Him this authority to lay down His life and to take it up again. And it's not against His will. Jesus, so they took Him. He humbled Himself. Veiling His matchless power in what looks like to everyone watching weakness. And He allows them to take Him. He He did this for His Father's glory and for the salvation of His people. And then we look in verse 17 and read, And He went out bearing His own cross. What all do you suppose is contained in that expression from Jesus here? And He went out bearing His own cross. It would be easy to hear that and just think, well, there's this this few second period between Jesus being at the stone pavement where He's being judged, and then you snap your fingers, and that's how we imagine it. And next thing you know, He's at the cross. That's how movies portray things like this. Instant. And yet, this going out was much more than that. Much more. Remember these things. Jesus has just been, right before this, beaten and scourged. Do you remember seeing where Pilate had him scourged to try to make a show of him, to show his power and authority over Jesus? Then he presents him to the Jews after scourging him. So he's been beaten and scourged. But that's not all. Remember, before that, Jesus has gone through, and you can go through all the Gospels, I believe it's either six or seven different trials, depending on your interpretation, that Jesus went through. Between these different leaders, these different priests, these different authority figures. And you see Jesus has undergone hate-filled trial after trial before wicked rulers and authorities. But that's not all. Before that, He was in agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. And before that, He was ministering into the night with His disciples. So you get this picture after a sleepless night full of heartache and tension and difficulty. Now Jesus, after being scourged, is being forced to drag a crossbeam of His own cross through the city as a condemned criminal. And He's doing it for everyone to see. This is a public mockery, Him doing this. Now, you need to realize something. You may watch movies or see pictures And you'll think that what it looked like was for Jesus to take a fully constructed cross and to throw it over his shoulders and to drag it through town. Well, in all likelihood, that's not actually how it would have happened. They would have had the the main beam, the post would have already been at the location. And he would have taken the cross beam, the part his arms were attached to. That's the part he would have been forced to carry through town in all likelihood, likelihood historically. And so this picture is they take Jesus and there's this intense physical burden. He's, he's already to the point of brokenness physically. And he's got this beam on his back, dragging it through town in front of everyone. And his body's so to the point of giving out. The other gospel writers tell us that a man named Simon the Cyrene was forced to have to help him take and carry the cross at least part of the way. He's weak. His body is at the point of death already, it would seem. And we don't quite enter in to, and He went out bearing His cross. We don't enter in to the despicable shame and the reproach of this scene. Think on this. If you took a sinful person like you and I, any one of us, none of us are righteous. If you took any one of us and paraded us down the main drag of town and we've been beaten and scourged and we're carrying the tool of our own execution on our backs, what a shameful 
thing that would be. A message to the entire town of how wicked we must be. Now, that's a despicable thing and a reproachful thing to sinners. How much more shame for the sinless Son of God to endure this. To be paraded in front of people in this way. Jesus carrying this beam through the city was Rome's way of telling everyone who would dare imitate Jesus that this too would be their fate. You know, it's not without reason that Jesus has said, and we'll consider this more down the road, that if you're going to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself and take up your own cross. See, the the point of this, Rome doing this, was not just a way to execute people. It was a message that they were sending to everyone else. You don't mess with Rome. You don't come after or go against us or this is what happens to you. This was a public declaration of Jesus. And the entire time He's walking through carrying this cross that would have been on display. I once heard Leonard Ravenhill, some of you may know who he is, but he heard or was told by A.W. Tozer, you may recognize that name, Evidently, A.W. Tozer told Leonard Ravenhill one time, he said, one thing you knew about a man carrying his cross out of the city, you knew he wasn't coming back. So here's the idea. It's not just a public spectacle. This is the way this man dies. That one you see dragging that behind him, he's headed to death and there's no coming back from it. And that's in part the message that's given to us that there is a dying and a moving forward and a no return that's required of us if we're going to follow him. My question from the beginning is how many professing Christians seem to want to whisper Jesus' name from their bedrooms or from the quiet, safe halls of their churches but are completely unwilling to bear a cross of shame before men. You see, there is a call going forth today and it hits me as much as anyone in this room. Every single person who would identify with Christ must die to self Crucify your damnable pride and live for your king. This is a message of death to me and my pride that I would be killed and die on the cross, that I would go forth no longer to be the same person I was before. That's what's seen in him going out bearing his own cross. The next part of verse 17, we see where they're going to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. As we saw with the stone pavement of judgment, if you'll recall from a previous message, this too, this place of the skull, Golgotha, was a publicly known place. And you know it's a publicly known place because there are multiple different languages indicating what this place is. And all of them have to do with the idea of death. Now, presumably in the Greek, it was called the place of death. And I don't speak Greek, so I don't know how to say it for you in Greek. But evidently in the Aramaic, or in other words, the Hebrew, it would have been called Golgotha which would mean the place of the skull. And an interesting thing, you may find this interesting, you know what the Latin word that's translated Golgotha is? Calvary. Calvary. From the Latin calva, meaning skull or head. In other words, here is a skull that's outside of town. This is where you take things to die. This is a a place of death, shame. Humiliation continuing to be compounded against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing that He Himself has humbled Himself in leaving heaven, leaving the courts of heaven. You see, we sometimes might think that it's only the cross is where His humiliation began. But whenever the Creator of all things enters into creation Himself and identifies with those things He's made by becoming like unto them, 
There's humiliation to be displayed in that. As a baby in Bethlehem. And then he humbles himself by being subjected to all the weaknesses and suffering of human frailty. Demonstrated in his suffering and his scourging here. He's humbled himself to the cruel judgments of evil men. And then he's paraded through town as a criminal. And here, finally, we see he's being taken to a trash heap outside of town, which is known as a place of death. And all this is taking place as a public spectacle. Galatians 3.1, Paul reminds these foolish Galatians and asks them, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I love the old language, perhaps in the King James it may say, placarded. That there is this placard, this public declaration, Jesus Christ is crucified. That's the message. That's what's going on here. He's being set forth publicly. And we see in verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. I want to take a moment here and I'm not going to have you turn to all of these places, but I'm going to just skim through them and call your attention to them for a very important reason. All four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their various perspectives and emphases. But John very uniquely has maintained a focused goal throughout this entire book. John's eyes have been laser focused upon the cross from the very beginning of his gospel. And here we're finally arriving at it. Now, historically, it's interesting to note of all the gospels, John probably wrote his last in all likelihood. And by everything we can measure things by, he would have wrote his gospel last. As a matter of fact, John's gospel would have likely been written after many of the Apostle Paul's letters were sent out. And so here's a man who was an eyewitness to this. That's the other thing about this fascinating account of the crucifixion. John's the only disciple we're told was here as an eyewitness. Now, yes, the others were inspired by the Holy Spirit and according to truth. But John actually saw it. The disciple whom the Lord loved was there beholding him at the cross. He's giving an eyewitness account. And it's almost as though John in his older age, reflecting on all the truth he'd come to realize He knows that the central focus of everything about the life of Christ is ultimately going to this cross. I want to just skim with you now from John's John's own account. You remember with me back all the way in chapter one, verse twenty nine. One of the very first things that John tells us is this. The next day, John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. He can't even get through the first chapter without telling us about Jesus being the Lamb of God. This is the theme. This is where he's going to this cross for. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them. After he's cleansed the temple and gone over and flipped their, their tables over and convicted them of sin. He tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his flesh. He would be destroyed. He was going to the cross. Then in John 3 verse 14, he told Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Are you seeing a common theme? It's like everywhere we look in John's Gospel, he's saying, he's going there. That's where he's going. This is where it's all leading. This is where it's culminating. 
And then forward in chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus told the crowd, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this theme, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, what is that about? Well, you recall on the last night, Jesus said, this bread that's broken, that's my body. This flesh, this, this drink, this wine, this cup you're drinking, that's my blood. This is the cross that's being referred to here. Chapter 7 and verse 30 we find, So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. So He has an hour coming. Again, John from the beginning is saying there's an hour coming. It's culminating in the cross. That's where this is going. From the beginning. And then John 8 and verse 20. These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. Again, there's an hour coming, an hour awaiting the crucifixion. John chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. In other words, He just told them before that, that, that as long as there's light, that's when you work. But when there's dark, no one can work. He's saying there's a time coming when I'm not going to be in the world anymore. Not in the way that I am now. I'm going out of the world. A reference to His cross. John chapter 10 and verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here we're continuing forward to the cross. Where the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. John 11 and verse 50. Nor do you understand. This was, remember, Caiaphas the high priest by inspiration of God. Though he did not even understand what he was saying. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You see again and again and again, we see Jesus going to die. Jesus to the cross. This is the central theme. And it's important that we see this has been a place worth getting. We have one little expression here about Jesus being crucified. And then it's repeated after they crucified him in a little while. But the point is, this event set in front of us today has been John's focus and his attention all the way through. You can look back in chapter 12, verses 23 through 33. We find this, and Jesus answered them. That hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Pause for a moment. You remember I said the cross work was not only an example. He was going to battle against the ruler of this world. As he was lifted up on that cross. And he says in verse 32. And I. When I am lifted up from the earth. 
when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again and again and again through John. Chapter 14 and verse 19, we read yet a little while. Jesus encouraging his disciples on the eve of his death. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. There's a time coming where I'm not going to be visible to the world. I'm going to die. Chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was going to die. John 16, 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. I'm not staying. I've got to die and go to the Father. And then John 17 and verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The hour came. And 18 and verse 11 of John. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You, you see, you cannot walk through and read this gospel account without seeing the purpose and intent all the way through of Jesus going to die. And the reason he went to die was to drink the cup of wrath from his Father. And now we read in our text His hour has fully come. They crucified him there. His purpose for coming into the world is right in front of him. And you can imagine each agonizing step he takes on his way from inside the city through the gate outside to Golgotha. And he knew what awaited him there. Not only was there the cruel cross of the Romans, but the cup of the wrath of God, which he had come to drink for us. And we read there they crucified him. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this just Keep in mind what it means that they crucified him. Surely you've got some conception, but probably not really. They drove nails. It says in places through his hands or possibly it was through his wrists. So if they went through the hand and the skin and the, the, the tissues in your hand were to rip apart, then the nail would your hand would pull through the nail. So it may have been either in the wrist or the forearm that they actually stuck the nail to hold him on securely would have driven nails through his hands or wrists to attach him to this beam he's been carrying. And then they mounted that cross beam to the vertical post. And there would have typically been four soldiers, one for each corner represented. So once everything's mounted together and he's got nails driven through his feet, they lift this thing upright. And as this cross is suspended vertically, the entire weight of his body begins crushing his lungs, making every breath a constant, costly strain. And as horrible and as humiliating as all of these physical sufferings were, Jesus was not the only person to be crucified. I mean, we read historically, Peter was crucified upside down. As a matter of fact, in our text, there are two others with him. There's nothing inherently unique about crucifixion. Of course, it is probably the most excruciating and painful death ever invented and a wicked, torturous tool. But there were others who died. When we say we trust in a crucified Christ, is there something more than the fact that a man went and was killed on a cross? What more is there? 
We'll read in our text. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Consider this from Isaiah 53 and verse 12. This prophetic word about Jesus, the suffering servant says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now listen, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. And again, I say the shame and the humiliation continue to be multiplied. This is a valley of humiliation. Not only is he on a cross, he's surrounded by other wicked people. It's almost as though they're saying in crucifying Jesus next to these two criminals, he's just as vile as them. My challenge to you and to me is if when we hear this account and we hear of Jesus being crucified, surrounded by these wicked criminals, is that if we imagine ourselves to be an innocent bystander, one who perhaps would have railed against the injustice of this entire scene, make no mistake, if you and I were there, the only way to rightly see yourself in this narrative would be as one of these desperately damned and dying criminals beside Jesus. And we would have been mocking Him the entire time. And if you tell me that that's not true of you, you don't know your own heart. And you don't realize what the Scripture says to you about you. We're no better, no more righteous than these who are He's numbered among. Verse 19, Pilate, we find, is writing an inscription and put it on the cross. And the inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. What's the purpose of this inscription? Why did Pilate feel the need to put this on here? Is he just being cute or trite? Or is there something more to this in the mind of Pilate? Well, this would have been a public notice describing the crimes of the one being put to death as a warning to other such criminals. It reminded me in just considering this inscription Some of you may have seen or watched the movie Lonesome Dove and Jake Spoon throws in in that movie with some horse thieves and murderers who hate farmers. They call them sodbusters and they hate them. And whenever Gus and Woodrow finally catch up with them again and they catch these guys, they hang them. And they nail a sign to their chest as they're hanging in a tree that says horse thieves and murderers. There's a placard. There's a statement. This is why this person died. So that no one else goes down the same road. Jesus said He was the King of the Jews. This is the one who says, I'm one in authority even over Pilate, even over Caesar. And it's meant to deter anyone from going down that same path. I don't know about you, but if I saw a few people hanging in a tree with a sign that said horse thief, I'm going to hesitate before I steal a horse. And that's the picture displayed here. Anybody who saw Jesus, King of the Jews, would have thought, oh no. I don't want to be associated with that guy. I don't want people to to think I'm like him. That's the idea here. Warning other people. But the amazing thing is that although Pilate had no idea or intention of doing so, God was using this man to proclaim the gospel to every person who would read it. That's God's intention. Pilate, a wicked man, doing it for wicked purposes, probably to spite the Jews and, and, and Jesus. And it may in fact be, I've mentioned this before, that God used Pilate's spiteful inscription to convert one of these criminals beside him. One of the criminals looking up and seeing King of the Jews. 
And the Holy Spirit applying that to his heart and saving him. We read in verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription Pilate made. They read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Now, the reason this is relevant is because this was during the time of Passover. People were coming to Jerusalem for Passover from all over the world. And that tells us that this Golgotha, though it was outside the gate of the city, it was near the outskirts of the city so that people traveling in and out of town would have likely seen this. So Pilate gives this inscription that we see in verse 20, we find that it's in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. The idea is that Pilate meant this as a warning to any person, as I mentioned before, who might possibly pass by this cross of Christ to tell them that Rome was not to be trifled with. And yet again, I say, consider the providence of God. This wicked, arrogant, pagan governor, Pilate, is making a public proclamation and he's doing it in every major language of the day that Jesus Christ is King of the Jews. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. The man says, I'm going to mock him and call him King of the Jews. And I'm going to put it in every language. It's a majority language so that everyone can read it. You see, Pilate, he did it to further shame Jesus, as I mentioned, despite the Jews and publicly deter anyone from going down the same path as Jesus. And here's my question. What application could there possibly be for us? Can you think of any similar deterrents that are thrust upon us today that are like this? Are there any convictions about Jesus Christ that are so unpopular, so controversial that to speak on them openly to the world, it's going to cost you? I want to call your attention. I'm going to ask you to turn there because we really need to get this to Hebrews chapter 13. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 with me. I want to read two verses for us about the reality of what's going on here. Pilate puts this sign on him so that nobody follows him and goes down this same road. Nobody else better rise up looking to an authority above Caesar. Nobody. Look what we find in Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. No question, this is a reference to His death outside of Jerusalem here at Golgotha. Outside of the camp. And, and we might like to think about what it means to bear the reproach of Christ. means that as Christian people, the world of unbelievers is going to hate us. And that's true. But in the context, the camp was inside Jerusalem. It was inside the religious capital. It was where all the most religious people in the land lived. Outside of that camp. The Jews were the ones who put Him to death. If you're not willing to stand apart and bear the reproach of the name of Christ, you cannot be His disciple. Here's the charge to us. This is what He says in Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Are you prepared to go outside the camp? Are you prepared to go against the grain of the God-hating world 
Are you willing to bear the reproach of Jesus and endure the suffering and opposition that comes with it? I believe the greatest problem within Christianity in this country today is that too many people are more interested in protecting their interests than they are committed to following Christ and entering into His sufferings. You know, as a young Christian, I was on fire for a little while and hopefully still am. But I remember getting really stirred up and worked up and I was constantly criticizing other people. And I think I had a, an arrogant attitude and maybe I still do sometimes. God, forgive me if I do. But I remember hearing this song played over and over again, a hymn. You probably recognize it called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And my initial response to that song, that hymn was to say, well, stop playing that song 17 times at the end of a service trying to manipulate people into coming forward. And I got frustrated about it. But then you start to think about the rest of the song and what's actually communicated. And I came to find out, I heard a man preach on that song one time and he said the person who wrote it was writing about their experience as a missionary in a basically a murderous cannibalistic tribe. And how he had to come to the conviction, even with his family and everyone who was in danger, to follow Jesus, even if it cost him his life. And he committed to those things. That The lines in that song came into his mind. And he ended up seeing an awakening and revival of sorts to this tribe of Native American peoples. Now, here's the lines that are significant. The first line says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Second line goes, the cross before me, the world behind me. There's a cross before me and the world behind me. The cross before me and the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. And the final line, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Now we believe in this church that no one is going to decide to follow Jesus without a new heart. That God must regenerate a human heart if they're going to follow Jesus. But there is a call upon you to decide if you're going to follow Jesus, take up your cross and follow Him or not. Because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. And this is not something to play around with. The truth of this book tells us Jesus has died for his people and he calls us to trust him and to follow him. And that involves the bearing of a cross. Now, I can't tell you what that's going to look like in your life. And it's not my job and I'm not interested and I have no right to micromanage any one of you. But I will tell you this. Examine your own heart and life and answer this question. Honestly, are you really following Christ? Are you following Him in this way? As you see His humiliation set in front of you, are you following Him? And the question maybe one of you might be asking right now here today is, why would I follow Him? What, what is there to gain? What is there to be found in following this Jesus through all the humiliation and suffering and death? What goal, what benefit is there? Bless the Lord and forget not all His benefits. What benefit is there in this? Well, Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Quickly, all we see in this is that the Jews want to distance themselves from Jesus as much as possible. They don't like the inscription king of the Jews because it associates them too much publicly with Jesus. And they want to remove all association. 
And in this engagement, we see the clash that is so evident in our world and even in our nation today of godless people coming up against each other. This is the constant theme, the constant constant thing you'll see more of than anything else in society is people who hate God, hating one another. And you see that clash here. Pilate responds to their opposition and says, what I have written, I have written. Pilate was unrelenting in his determination. And you see, the Jews pushed him to this point. They did everything they could to convince him Jesus is a threat to Rome. So he finally says, okay, fellas, I'm going to take you seriously. Crucify him. I'm giving him over. Even though I know he's innocent, I'm giving him over. And now he's covering his own rear and saying, this one said he's the king of the Jews and he's a threat to Rome. And so he says, I'm not changing what I've said. What I've written, I've written. And once again, We ought to hear in that expression the thundering echo of God's sovereignty. This is the truth from the ages. Jesus is King of the Jews and that cannot be changed or undone. That's demonstrated for us in our text. And I want to look at these next two verses together with you. 23 and 24. Take these together. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now we take these two verses together, and on the surface... It kind of looks like these soldiers are basically doing what they always did when executing somebody. This person's dying. They don't need these things. We're going to take them and divide them amongst ourselves. And we can gather that there were four soldiers because they divided it in four parts. And they're dividing the spoils of clothing together. And yet, I believe there is much more going on here than just that. For one, we know John tells us expressly and clearly this is a direct fulfillment of God's purpose, which has already been declared in the Psalms. From our call to worship in Psalm 22, we read in verse 18, they will divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And so it's amazing. I heard someone say recently that the number, the odds, the chances, the chances, the percentage chance that any one person could fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is so astronomically high that it's just impossible that any one person could have done that. And yet he did. All of them fulfilled perfectly in him. And here is yet another one. But as we've been seeing, it was his purpose. This is why he came. This was his purpose from the beginning. There was no surprise that these people dividing his garments up in this way. And it's extremely important for us to understand how necessary it was that the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus said not one jot or tittle is going to pass away until it's all fulfilled. The word of God will be fulfilled. It must be. And yet this dividing up of the clothes of Jesus is much more significant than just a foretold event. Think on it this way. The picture we're given in these verses, these two verses here, they take us even further into the continued humiliation of Jesus Christ. I say it's the valley of humiliation. He was forcibly stripped naked. If you understand this rightly, and if I'm understanding this as I have sought to with the best of my abilities, this is a lot of clothes for one person living in the Near East, right? 
Somebody who's got all these four different garments they can spread around and, and use in different parts of the body. What's this seamless garment? What's this tunic? What's that about? Well, as far as I can tell, it was an undergarment. One without a seam. One that would cover the body on the underside of the clothes. They stripped Jesus naked. They removed His outer garments and divided them amongst each other. And then they cast lots for this undergarment, this tunic. And as if the public humiliation could not get any worse than we've seen, now Jesus is stripped naked for everyone to see, including His own mother. This is a horrifying demonstration of what He endured in His humiliation. And I ask, what do you think is so significant about the fact that Jesus was stripped naked as He's going to be hung upon this cross. What is so remarkable about that? Well, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. This is after Adam and Eve have listened to the serpent. They've taken and eaten the fruit that God commanded not to. They've eaten it. And then it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Huh. Man in sin becomes ashamed and afraid because of his nakedness. He's stripped. He realizes I'm naked. I've got no covering before other people or before God. I'm exposed. And it concerns him. And here the Lord Jesus, who had no sin, had nothing. He'd ever done wrong. They hated without a cause. And he's stripped naked. You go on in Genesis 3, verse 21, you read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And smarter men than I have said it was probably a lamb that was killed to give them those clothes. Why? To cover the sin of man. To cover Adam's sin. Adam was covered and given a promise. Jesus comes. The Lamb of God comes. And they strip Him naked. Adam's nakedness and shame was covered. And here Jesus... Jesus, the Lamb of God, stripped naked before both God and man, bearing His cross, and He's treated as guilty and condemned. And I ask, what gracious condescension of Jesus Christ. How can it be that the Lamb of God should be exposed before God in the way that I was supposed to be? He's stripped bare before God, and He had no sin, but He's treated as if He did. The valley of humiliation. For his people. You begin to see what he's endured and, and look at it more thoroughly, and you see, maybe you enter in a little bit more to what we find in Philippians chapter 2. This is why the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified never ought to ever get old to us, because every time we read it, we're reminded of what was true of us and what is true of us apart from Christ. Exposed with no covering. Listen. Listen with your heart's ears again to Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. So if there are any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He humbled himself and he became a man. He humbled himself becoming a servant. He humbled himself in all his suffering and experiences in life to sympathize with us as a high priest who knows what we go through and yet without sin. And he looks at you and I and says, I'm going humbly to die for you all the way to death. And not just any old death. He didn't just die any old way, but as one cursed on a tree. What glory. What humiliation. What a substitute. The last verses I want to look at with you we'll take together as well. And again, there's much we could say about these things. Verses 25 through 27, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want to give you a little explanation and disclaimer. I listened to an incredible sermon by Stephen Lawson on this very text recently. And probably a number of wonderful points he made are coming out. Glory to God, they're true. Matter of fact, it was Steve Lawson who said, If it's new, it isn't true. So if what he said was true, then it wasn't new to him either. So praise God for His help through His saints. But here's the point. One thing I remember He said. Here you have the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only disciple we know is here that was a male was John. And look at this list of women. It's true. Men are supposed to lead. The husband is the head of the home and men are to lead in the context of the church. But praise God for godly women who are here, who are witnessing, who are there in support. They're not hiding and cowering with the other disciples. They're there. They're present. An encouraging thought. But what we see in these verses is Jesus, in the midst of all His own suffering, every breath, He's got to lift up and feel His muscles tearing apart just to get a half a breath. And as He's doing that, He looks and sees His mother. And he's compelled by love, love for his mother. But not only his mother, she was one of his disciples. She was one he came to save from her sin. I don't care what Rome tells you. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong. Mary needed a savior from her sin. And she had one in her own son. And he loved her. He's so aware of the needs of those around him and not his own. A selfless act. He looks upon her and the others with her. And he sees John there with her. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. Now, whether she's saying, essentially, mother, look at me for a moment. Or perhaps there's an exchange that's similar to what he tells John, behold your mother. 
But the encouragement is plain and clear. He loves them and he's telling John, take care of her. Obviously and likely Joseph, her husband is dead and her oldest son is dying. Somebody needs to take care of Mary. He says, he says, John, beloved disciple, take care of my mother. Look after her. We read that from that hour, he began to do exactly that. But a compelling application, you say, what does that have to do with us in the context of a church here today? Everything about this text is compelling us with the love of Christ and His humiliation and saying to you and I, bear your cross for Jesus who died for you. Go and suffer for His name. That's what you're hearing today. And it seems so fitting that in the context of that suffering, Jesus looks at His own and says, love one another well. How important is it? How important is it that you and I stick together as we go through trials, the hatred of the world. I can tell you this, there's no one dearer to a Christian's heart whenever the world is hating them for Christ than another Christian who comes alongside and says, I'm with you. I love you. We're going together. We have a different king. So my closing thoughts are these. Have you been compelled by the valley of humiliation that Christ endured for you? Do you understand that the sentence of guilt, the shame and the nakedness, the exposure that he was subjected to, that's what you and I have do us. How do you measure up to that? Have you been given a covering, a covering by his blood? You read in Hebrews four, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his side, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account And here we find this sinless son of God naked and exposed that we might be covered. We get to be covered. And if you're not covered, there's no hiding you outside of this lamb of God. Who was slain that his sheep should be saved and gathered in. Here's my question to you. Will you go? As we read in Hebrews 13, will you go to him outside the camp? Will you be separate? Come out and be separate from the world. Be different. Someone once said recently, the problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. Because they don't tell them the truth. Because they're afraid and they're desiring that the people would love them. And I submit to you, I have suffered from that same temptation. But Christ's worthy. He's worthy of everything. And I pray that you would be encouraged that if you haven't found rest in him today, you would fly to him, love him, trust him, that your sins be forgiven. And if you are one of his, live for him. And may we as believers continue this same line of loving, supporting and encouraging one another as we all share in Christ's sufferings together. That I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Oh God, let us not forget all your benefits, the glories of the cross of Christ. Lord, we have nothing that we can bring, nothing that we can do, but trust him, look to him. Lord, I pray that you will be glorified in us.
Strengthen us as your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.